Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels from thoughtful detail through organizational transformation to the changes in society and the world. My name's Andy Pollain, a designer, educator, and writer, and currently Group Director of Client Evolution at Fjord. My guest today is Gretchen Anderson. Gretchen consults with clients to inform their product strategy and improve team collaboration skills. She co-authored the book Pair Design with Chris Nussel, and her latest book, Mastering Collaboration, was recently published by O'Reilly. She spent the first part of her career in design consulting for firms like Frog Design, Cooper and Luna. Recently, she was head of design at PG&E, California's largest energy company. She's led the design of the hardware and software of a next-generation surgical system and served as VP of product at greatscores.org. And she now works as an independent consultant. Gretchen, welcome to Power of Ten. Thanks for having me. So um, that was your kind of quick bio. What, how did you get to where you are now from where you have been? You know, it's interesting. My career has always been a series of adventures and accidents and good luck. I started out uh, in consulting. I worked at like organic and even firms before that. As just as the web was kind of coming to be and understanding that there needed to be someone, and we got into design, not as a trained designer, but as someone who saw, oh, there needs to be some translation layer <laughs> between give me a website and actually making that website. And so from there, I went on to places like Frog and Cooper, like you mentioned, where they had very specific ideas about how things were going to be done and what the right outcomes were. And I really love the dedication that both of those firms took quite quality output. And then when I went on to work, quote unquote, in-house, I was more responsible for building teams or at great schools having to bring engineering, product management, and design all into a big, happy family and taught me a lot about getting different kinds of people to work together well or passively. Um, so that's sort of what I've been focused on. And now that I've left PG&E, where I was really trying to bring that to the company culture as a whole, I've decided to work on my own because I can bring, I think I can deliver results at a better scale as an independent operator than sort of within one big mammoth company. So just so we get a, a kind of time span of that, when you were saying you were in the early days, you were working just as the web was sort of coming into being, when was that for you? Yeah, I started in the field in like 95, 94. Um, well, it's pretty early, right? It really yeah. is the web was coming into being, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the stories I remember is that uh, they, at Organic, um, they sold ad banners to AT&T, and somebody asked, well, what happens when you click on the ad banner? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I guess we need a website, you know? So it's sort of like, it started at that level of like, just make a thing. The, the idea of having it be especially well-designed was something we talked about, but I think it's taken... A long time. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. So the mental model of a, a web ad banner was a billboard, right? You just yeah. <laughs> kind of drive past it. You don't click on them. Yeah. But I mentioned before you, you wrote Pair Design with Chris. Pair programming is, oh, I, I know of it, so it's reasonably well known. So how did Pair Design kind of came about? And I should, just for that, because we're on a podcast, I mean Pair as in P-A-I-R, not Pair as in the thing you eat. <laughs> yes. You know, at Cooper is where I really first got a taste of pair design. Their methodology is really built around having someone who is what they call sort of a generator and someone who's more of a synthesizer. We had different names for them when I worked there. But just this idea that there's someone who's keeping their eye on the long arc and do things fit and critiquing while someone is thinking expansively of like, well, what if I did it this way? What if I did it that way? And it helps you really quickly work through a lot of ideas. 
And it helps you really avoid what happens as a solo designer, even if you have a quote unquote team that you're showing things to, where you kind of get a, yeah, looks good. It's like you avoid some of the flops that you make, right? It's like dumb mistakes. Oh, I could have thought about that. So I really loved that um, approach at Cooper. And then at, at Frog, they also did pair design. It was less formal, but you were always paired. And it was often, you know, a visual designer and an interaction designer where mm. two very diff- different perspectives. It wasn't about junior, senior. It was, I see this problem this way, you see it that way, and we're going to have to battle this out. We were really empowered as a duo to come to the right conclusion. It's funny, I've just been, I'm writing a piece about synthetic realities, about um, GANs, generative adversarial networks, and this, what you're describing is like a kind of little human version of that, where you have, literally, you have a generator and someone who's then kind of editing or, or filtering that afterwards. And it's, for me, it also reminds me a lot, I actually studied film, and you know, in film, it's very collaborative, but one of the things that now, especially in TV, you get is the writer's room, right? So although screenwriters for film tend to work solo, the writer's room really is that space where kind of everyone is piling in and there's a um, there's a real kind of need for trust in that space, but also a need to go away and do some stuff on your own as well. And so in pair design, are you always together or do you have sort of some together time and then separate time? Oh God, that would be cruel and unusual punishment to be together all the time. Cause you've, you know, frankly, even when you have a healthy pair, you, we would basically spend like, let's say the morning together, maybe go to lunch together and then break off and do, you know, I would maybe write up what we talked about while someone is drawing up what we put on the whiteboard. Mm. And that cadence is, you know, it's almost like breathing too. It needs to be in there to support the trust and the ability to be vulnerable and then, you know, even times you'd be going at it head to head and there was a rule, you know, you couldn't fight for more than five minutes without going and getting any third person, whoever it was, <laughs> go grab one person, lay out your case, you know, and get past the fight because it's not what we're here to do. So, I mean, it's quite common in the the copywriter, um, art director mix as well, or pairing, isn't it, in, in uh, the ad world? That- for sure. Yeah, and I think it comes for the same reason, which is you need different perspectives. We're not looking for diversity in product teams, you know, because we're do-gooders, it really does make things better when you have different perspectives and whether those perspectives are based in functional skill or subject matter expertise or life expertise, whatever it is, all of that is important. It's a good segue because so you, you wrote the, when did Mastering Collaboration come out? It's quite recent, isn't it? Yeah, March of this year. Right. So, and, and the subtitle is Making Working Together Less Painful and More Productive, which is probably um, a good description of the the dark side of collaboration or at least working together i would say so you did pair design why this book and, and why now what was the itch you, was it your own itch that you were scratching or is it were you seeing a lot of painfulness and uh, lack of productivity going on um, how did this come about well you know as being part of the quote-unquote digital transformation team at pg&e which i think you know you're familiar with this kind of work it's about getting a whole organization to think differently and work differently and I was by no means working on my own at that. But what I saw was people really were attracted by the pitch of that. People really adopted the language around collaboration and iteration and experimentation and hypotheses. And one executive in particular was doing a reorg, and I just watched them go through this really well-intentioned, I really want your input, you know, here's all of our values. We're like excellently well set up thing. And then do the thing in the last five minutes of the meeting by bobbing up a new org chart and saying, what do you think? And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I could have saved you in either direction. We could have either skipped the whole front part <laughs> or made good on it. 
but the fact that you split the difference, which happens a lot, I call us collaboration theater sometimes, like, oh, we want all of the trappings of collaboration, but it is very difficult to do the hard work to actually make the collaboration productive, which is kind of why I focused on making it less painful. Because I think if you've had a good experience like I've had, and I've seen, you know, I've banged my head with my partners against these problems and come out on the other side stronger for it, it's great. If you haven't had that experience, you're like, oh God, not another brainstorming meeting or not another like nobody can make a decision situation. So we, in there, there's a little bit of, you know, we tend to consider that collaboration is de facto better. Well, I think designers at least kind of tend to, we talk a lot about how collaborative we are and that we're going to do this process. And particularly in, I, sort of, I work a lot in service design and co-creation and co-design and all of those things are very important, particularly in the, what's known as the Scandinavian model of that, which is the sort of co-creation part. And so it's kind of built into that is this, I think is the assumption, and it may be valid, that collaboration is better than not but clearly you know some people perhaps like the guy at the uh, running that meeting you just described might just think you know what it'd just be loads better if I did this myself or if you just did what I said so why is collaboration better well yeah it's not necessarily always better I think there are certain situations so certain kinds of problems very complex problems or problems with a lot of ambiguity you're going to need a lot of perspectives on it. You're not going to know the right thing to do. There's actually a story in the book about Tom Chi, who is one of the first employees at Google X working on the Google Glass prototype. And, you know, they were sitting around and he was so excited to be there with all these big shots. And they were trying to decide what color the heads-up display should be. And they fought for a while. And Sergey finally said, it's red because it's the lowest energy photon and it's always red in sci-fi. And everyone's like, good enough for me. And he's like, whoa, 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 hold the phone. Like, <laughs> what if we just ran a test? And they ran a test and it turns out red is the absolutely worst color you could have gone for because Sergey was right. It's the lowest energy photon that becomes completely overwhelmed by the entire background it's trying to sit in front of. <laughs> so it just goes to show that like without collaboration, you end up with these really well-intentioned guessathons, is what he calls them. And I've seen this over and over again, and I think we're starting to see people with egg on their face where they do something dumb that they just, like, you just didn't have the right people in the room. So I think there's that. I, I also think it's, you know, if you can pull it off without collaborating, go for it. Like I say kind of half-jokingly in the book, everybody helps as a principle because they're already, quote-unquote, helping you. But if they're not aligned or enlisted, they're just going to drag on you. And I've seen this in these corporate environments, and it's toxic and terrible, but it's a reality. And so if you can declare a fiat and that works for you, great. If that just costs you two years of political capital, oi, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm sure there are kind of, um, everyone will always point to the, the sort of exception of Steve Jobs and, and Johnny Ive and say, well, you know, they're the kind of design, which is they just decided, but it's not from what I've read and understood of the culture in Apple, for example, that's not actually the case. There is an awful lot of, well, there was an awful lot of uh, collaboration as a great sort of demo culture. I don't know if you've read um, Ken Cosienda's book about creative ev evolution, which sort of talks about how there was a kind of internal healthy competition, which I think is a bit like the sort of, it's not quite the pair design that you're talking about, but there's definitely um, that sense of trying to sort of outdo each other positively. Yeah. But there was a, there's certainly a sort of arbiter at the end of that in Steve, but there was quite a kind of collaborative process that went into it. So what you just described, though, uh, particularly like the Google example, actually also takes a particular setup, right? Someone's got to feel safe enough to say, oh, hang on a minute, Sergey, maybe you're, you're not right. 
hang on a minute, very important person <laughs> in, the, in the room. Uh, let's think about this differently. So you structured the book in several parts, and one of them is the first bit's about creating the, uh, the right environment. That seems to be you know, describing quite a lot of what you were just talking about. So tell me a little bit about what the right environment is. Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, a lot's being done in this front. If you look at the type of, again, people doing digital transformation stuff or agile evangelism or servant leadership, you know, I think a lot of people are out there trying to change the way business is being done to be, quote unquote, more collaborative. And it's really um, trying to overcome the typical or the, the, the normal inertia, which is toward individualism. We're all graded individually and rewarded individually, and we compete for jobs at fewer and fewer are above us. The environment is sort of antithetical to being vulnerable and keeping yourself open. So working through how to develop trust and really work with a lot of different people in the right ways, in the right roles, that's critical. And it, that to me is more important than trying to fix the whole system because I kind of have done both. <laughs> and I realized the Sisyphean task of like it, culture happens by doing. And so in some ways, modeling this behavior, and a lot of it is about being able to be trusting and using roles. You know, when we were discussing pair design, what makes that work is it's not just two people in a room shouting. It's two people given very distinct roles. And some days we would swap them every day. Some people would stick in a role for an entire project or for their entire career. But what, you know, do it however you want to do it. But you got to have some sort of agreement about who's deciding. You know, what Steve Jobs was doing was deciding for people, right? He was saying, I'm taking on the risk of knowing when the phone is done. Yeah. So you talk about giving everyone a role. And, you know, to read that, you kind of think, well, yeah, duh, of course everyone's got a role. But you're not, you're not talking about, you know, you're the developer, I'm the designer and so forth, are you? You're talking about different sort of styles of role and almost sort of styles of personality or kind of social functions, I would perhaps mm-hmm. say, in the group rather than their actual sort of technical or craft functions. Yeah, I love that social roles. That's a great way to describe it because that is what's important. The functional stuff is is what happens when you go back to your desk. That's where your role is very clear. It's when we're all together, who is keeping track of what we need to get done? You know, who's prioritizing? Who's And I think, again, the agile people and others have developed some tools in this way. So... There's stuff to latch onto there. Like I, people thought I was kind of crazy when I said, I want to link up design thinking and safety culture at PG&E because it's all the same stuff. It's all about the same messages people are getting about being open to hearing yeah. different feedback from different people and knowing who's the decider and knowing who needs to be informed and all of that stuff. Why did people think you were crazy? I mean, I, I think I've had this conversation too, but I'm interested because it, it does seem, I think, from the inside of it to be a really obvious connection what was seemed crazy about it to the people the other stakeholders who didn't kind of see what you were seeing yeah and for those who don't know when i say safety culture like so pg and is a gas and electric company um you know they're responsible for some wildfires here there's there's been explosions electricity is dangerous there is a not insignificant push within the company to make people aware of and mitigate risks related to that work they like to say it's hazardous not dangerous you can manage hazards. And so there's a lot of messaging about everything from texting while driving to operating backhoes and whatnot. So I think what was strange is it was like, why would you take this seemingly esoteric, digitally oriented thing and try to ladder it into this 
sort of well understood, or at least there's precedent for it out in the world discussion that honestly people tune out of if it's not done well. But, you know, I also felt like, God, there's only so many messages people can take. And if at the heart, the values are the same, which is speak up culture means listen to somebody when they're telling you important information. I'll take it. The second part of the book is about spaces and setting up, and you talk about physical and virtual spaces. How much, you talk about kind of, you know, being together, and how much do you think that kind of sense of safety and that trust and that trusting that you can say something is to do with physical face-to-face time, and how much of that can you achieve remotely? (laughs) Yeah, I found that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who really value (laughs) in-person synchronous communication and those who can deal without it. (laughs) Because I went in with this real bias toward being in person and synchronous communication. And a lot of people I first talked to shared that. And then over time, I just started to run into, and maybe because I was trying to seek out other perspectives, people who work on largely remote or all remote teams and hearing about how having the distance and doing asynchronous communication, so this is the Bezos white paper model, or just you know marking up documents on your own time, prioritizing either FaceTime or phone meeting time for the decisions and discussion. And partially, I've come around in that thinking. I don't know that I could wholly adopt it because I excel in this synchronous, fast-moving, favors extroverts world. <laughs> I can dominate a conversation, actually. And so I'm maybe shutting down communication inadvertently that would come up if there was space being made for it. So I've kind of come around to why you might want to support, you know, even separate from can you all be co-located. You know, I've definitely worked with people who are not real-time processors or people who are not native English speakers who just can't survive that battle of fast talk in the same way. And I don't mean that to be like fair to them. Is that fair to the users or whoever's on the other side of these decisions? I mean, I've taught a lot online and, and that was one of the things that, you know, ages ago, so late 90s, I started doing um, some global online collaborative teaching workshops or, or kind of projects. And it was interesting because it was global and it was international. And although English was the default language it was there were lots of people the majority of people actually for whom English wasn't their first language and then later on I I taught quite a lot of art and design and interactive media and so on uh, online and courses and one of the things that a lot of people in online education as they moved into it in the kind of late 90s tried to to do was to um, just sort of duplicate the lecture and seminar experience online. So there was this kind of intent to just, let's just make it real time. But actually, you know, with the reduced bandwidth of back then in particular, it didn't really work very well because you, you lost so much that in fact it was kind of terrible. And, and instead of thinking, well, what, what are the good affordances of this medium? What works really well? And one of them really is that asynchronous thing. And in fact, we went back to kind of fairly old school technology of kind of like bulletin board mm-hmm. style sort of feedback things i mean in the and you see it really powerfully in things like reddit and so forth and slash dot and all the rest of them where that asynchronous thing the chance to uh, a as you said look a word up that i don't know or google translate something or you know take a while to kind of write it or collect my thoughts and think about that and write something plus the kind of record of the conversation that you have is also incredibly useful I think is is very, very powerful. And it kind of, I suppose it's slightly there, perhaps in sort of Slack culture, but it kind of slightly gets lost, I think. I mean, I, you, you mentioned it in um, in the book about people becoming sort of unattentive in, in calls. You know, there is the 
temptations, particularly when video is not on, to kind of you know, check your email whilst you're on the call and kind of zone out. And actually, when you're re- when you're having to read something, you actually sort of spend perhaps. I wonder if you spend a bit more kind of depth of time considering what the person's mm-hmm. saying. Well, and I loved um, Michael Sippy from Medium talking about how like now he gets kind of rubbed the wrong way whenever he's in a meeting where somebody is like holding the slide baton. I don't forget the exact words he used, but you know, sort of like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that in another slide. Like I'm going to control the pace of this conversation. (laughs) And I've come to that too, where I, you know, I I, um, counsel a lot of clients and I kind of help their design teams. And a lot of it is like trying to get them to structure to sound a lot more like a conversation and a lot less like a monologue so that you can at least roll around in it and to allow for not the big reveal, right? Like we all know as designers, like that's the, it's a killer, never works and yet do it. (laughs) So, I mean, I certainly in terms of like facilitating collaborations, facilitating workshops, I think I learned a lot from facilitating in in Asia, for example, where um, the sort of culture around, you know, critiquing someone else or the culture around, because it's certainly critiquing your seniors or your, you know, the person in authority above you is not quite the same as in, say, in the States or something. But also um, had that realisation of talking, and you mentioned it before, of the, you know, introverts versus extroverts and trying to sort of structure a rhythm where, you know, there's some stuff that you do on your own and then you come back and, and kind of share it with the group and then there's sometimes you share with everyone. Because I often think a lot of the classic kind of workshop techniques around that are intended to facilitate collaboration must be awful for introverts. You know, they're very, very kind of, um, hey, everyone, come up with some ideas and stand in front of everyone and, and tell everyone about it. You know, I, it's, it's awful uh, and it does bias towards extroverts. You know, it's funny because I was in a workshop as a participant and the people running the workshop were very experienced they're from a large uh, retailer. They were sort of pro bono facilitating this workshop about improving education and community in Minneapolis. And so I was just there as a participant. And so it was really fascinating to have it kind of done to me. And um, a lot of the participants were actually Somali women who I could sense it was not going well. And finally I said, what? What's, I can tell you're upset. What's going on? They explain that it's so rude in their culture to tell someone to hurry up. Like being late is not a problem, (laughs) but telling somebody to hurry, like at the very heart of the kind of facilitation that these people were doing and all of their talk about empathy, they were not really reading the room (laughs) and understanding that this was not landing because it was just like, this is how we do it. So I think there's, you know, even just some cultural biases built into that. So this nicely sort of brings us on to this, the question of, you know, why collaboration and why people work together and, and the diversity of, of views. And in, in that case, this sort of cultural diversity. You've been talking quite a lot uh, recently about design and AI and for and with AI. And you mentioned to me just before we were recording that this is an area where it kind of really does require collaboration and uh, changing our ways of working. What's your kind of take on that? Well, I think, you know, open the Twitters any day and read another dystopian story and no one, you know, no designer's interested in that or I'm not anyway, because that's not how I'm wired. When I think about what it's going to take to make these things work for us, I think about things like, you know, right now, if you ask a data scientist to tell you how an algorithm came up with something, they'll kind of say, I can't tell you that. Like, it's too complicated. And like, I get that. I get that the math is complicated. But more and more, our users are going to demand 
I call it the Sherlock Holmes. Like, I can tell that you're a lamplighter from Brixton because you've got just stuff <laughs> on your collar and you're getting married Very on Wednesday. You know, people want <laughs> people want that sort of you know shortcut. It's not don't give me the math, but give me some sense of the signal. The sort so, of chain of provenance of it. Yeah, and so that's like a kind of collaboration that if designers specifically or product people just leave it to the math people, that's a bad situation and we're leaving a lot on the table. But I think there's also defensive tools we need, right? Like how am I going to defend myself against whatever facial recognition stuff or <laughs> like you name it. That's going to take some collaboration because it goes against the business model of every capitalist company. So we're going to have to get clever about how we incentivize. And that might not be about a product team. That might be about regulation, right, or whatever. So how does that connect back to collaboration? Because I, I get what you're saying. But in, in that example you just gave me, there's definitely the, you, know, you talk about the difference between cooperation and collaboration in the book. You know, in, in that example, it, it, again, it's, well, I'm paying you, so you just do what I say, uh, or this is how the business works. How how do you feel that collaboration is a about a, a kind of defense or maybe a, a kind of way of changing that direction? Well, I think when people are part of really hashing through a decision with other people, they become much more thoughtful about it and much more attuned to its outcomes. When it's just like, you know, I don't know if you've known busy executives, like I've one I was really close to, I'm like, she's making like 20 huge decisions every hour. Yeah. It's crazy. And the, the breadth of things she's expected to know and be an expert on is kind of crazy. And so whether it's her or one someone who works for her, you know, having to think through big decisions, I think is important. And what I found is you can speak truth to power if you give if you make the user experience of it one that is exploration and playful and low stakes and I'm not calling you out, right? If you can set this up as I'm just trying to do the right thing for people here and maybe even let them come to their own conclusions, I think you can get through. Now, again, you can't break the, we have a fiduciary responsibility to the bottom line at all times. I mean, I'd like to tell a story of, I designed a Discover credit cards first website and we proposed that they email people when their bill was going to be due and they were like, they laughed. They said, do you know how much money we make <laughs> off of late fees? And, you know, so we did not win that war. We tried, but within nine months or a year, they were doing that because the whole market was doing that. And so I like to think I was one of the many conversations that they had with the quote unquote suits, right? That was bringing them along in this process. So well, it's a very good example. I think that's one of the things where, I mean, you see the kind of challenger banks and um, my colleague on This Is HCD was talking to the um, head of product from N26 the other day, and which is a mobile only bank in, in Europe. And sort of heading to be the wants mm. to be the sort of first global bank, and you know that's it's the same as um, it was Simple Bank as well. You know that idea that you shift from trying to sort of gouge people in that way that you just mentioned, which is you take advantage of the fact that most people are pretty rubbish with money, and shift to how about we try and help you be good with money as a user experience, which and the customer experience. And then, you know, it quite quickly tips into, and then you actually like us as a bank, and then banks are one of the least trusted institutions in, in the world, and therefore you're loyal and so on and so forth. You know, then you, uh, and then you kind of earn the right to have a, a relationship with the customer. 
it seems a pretty obvious leap, but I can kind of see how uh, when it's phrased in, a, in the wrong way, you don't really get it. But when it's phrased in, in a sort of better customer experience, it suddenly turns the corner and then everyone's playing to catch up. Yeah, I think I had a, t- a discussion on Twitter earlier about like, you know, what happens when somebody is just shutting you down and making a bad decision. And you know, I was sort of saying like, in that situation, I think it's really useful to just look that person in the eye and be like, hey, you're the decision maker here. Like if you're deciding this, you know, I underscore the you're, <laughs> you know, that's cool. Like you're the Steve Jobs here. You're signing up for the decision and the accountability. That's awesome. And that gives some people some pause sometimes. Cause again, they might just be going along with like, I'm tired. I want to get done with this. We need to make a decision. I'm just going to make a decision. I'm going to fall back on a lot of stuff. So I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and annoy everyone here, the, all the listeners, because I, I think actually this is probably the Achilles heel of designers. And you talk about making sound decisions actually in the book. And because designers, I think, are pretty collaborative, and particularly when they're designers amongst designers, and I mean every kind of flavor of them at this point, so a sort of multidisciplinary team working together, there can often come a point on, in projects where everyone kind of appreciates everyone else's opinion. It's like a kind of um, an over kill of, of empathy sometimes everyone kind of appreciates everyone's opinion about this is a could be anything about this is the way to kind of do synthesis on this data or this is the way to kind of direction forward or i've got this idea and i've got this idea and there's a kind of standstill because uh, no one's willing to make the decision have you seen that kind of going on I and mean, if you have what's your what's your solution to that Oh, it happens all the time. Or the flip thing happens, which is we know who needs to make this decision. His name is Bob and he's down the hall and he'll never come to this meeting. So somebody's like running, <laughs> playing runner. Okay. Well, there's that. But there's also that thing of kind of, I don't want to seem uncollaborative if I make the decision or if I oh, say interesting. it's going to be that. Yeah. yeah. No, I have seen that. And I think, you know, the, uh, the Google Sprint book gets at this too, like being very clear as you're planning the interaction, I was going to say a workshop, it doesn't have to be a workshop. Like as mm. you're planning the situation, I think you start out, even when you're defining your objectives, you should know who gets to make the decision. And there should be some church and state in that, right? Like I'm just talking with um, somebody about KPIs and like, I think a healthy set of KPIs are in conflict with one another. It shouldn't just be up and to the right all the time. It should be a source of a conversation with someone who is trying to balance these things and who has enough scope and authority to do that. And so as designers, like, you know, we can fight over to quote unquote design decisions, but like I don't, most designers aren't qualified to make big business decisions. They can help business people make better business decisions and articulate them better. But like, you know, it's not our business. I mean, I, I think this, I'm, I mean, imagining there's some designers who particularly say the sort of business designer end or strategic designer end of things who might say, no, well, it, it is my business. And in fact, what going back to what you were saying before about, you know, is the responsibility to the bottom line. I think the the conversation there is, well, actually, you know, companies and, and obviously leadership in companies often feel they exist to serve the shareholders or create kind of shareholder wealth. And of course, they don't really. You know, that's a, The shareholder wealth is kind of a byproduct of that company creating something in the world to enable customers or people to, to do something. But I think, and I think sometimes, and particularly now, when you've got a range of sustainability and ethical social impact issues that are coming into play, there's an argument for having that argument. I would say that um, that actually we've done a lot of the research, we've got a lot of the data, we really understand the impact this is going to have on people. But are you saying that at the end, you know, the business person has to make the decision? 
Well, they, they'd better be on board with it because they're the ones accountable for it. Yeah. Sure. And so again, I can point out, here's what I would advise. I, I'm, I'm your advisor. As your advisor, here's what I'm advising you to do, but I'm not actually on the hook for if it fails. And I mean, I don't know, you get into the guts of some industries. I was just at a client whose entire business is based on like managing margins. And it's, that's how their industry runs. It's an interesting thing to think mm. about as a user-centered person where you're like, I don't want or care about any part of that, but I want what this thing gives me. And so, yeah. you know, it's like, I'm not going to go tell them to stop managing their business on margins. Well, what am I going to replace it with? <laughs> but I can help them, you know, manage that situation better. Do you think that help, that at least the design is kind of slightly getting out of having to make difficult ethical decisions? Because it's like, well, look, I'm going to advise you on this, but in, you know, in the end, it's your decision. Well, I mean, I think that's a good, yeah, I think that's a good provocation. And if anything, I would say, if you're speaking up and giving your opinion about the business, you know, you're doing your ethical duty. And if people way above you decide to ignore you, I mean, I think you you leave at that point. Like if it's truly something you can't abide by. But you know what I mean? There's a kind of temptations for, well, you know, I, I said something about it. But, you know, it wasn't really my decision. So, you know, but that's just the way it goes. And so you know, do, do we shirk our, uh, some kind of moral duty in, in that? I mean, you could, but um, I find that situation happens more when people haven't been included in the process, right? When they feel like the decision was just made. But I think if you come up and you say, you asked me to go look at this, give me my perspective. Here's my perspective. Here's what I saw. Here are the risks. Here are the assumptions. You know, here's where you're blind, you know, entering into that partnership by, by saying, I'm going to help you is something that I think designers can get better at. It's not like I'm trying to get you to approve my thing. I'm trying to say, here's everything I have. Now, what's your perspective that I don't know about? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like there's a, a double diamond. You kind of, I think you describe it a bit in collaboration where there's, mm-hmm. um, there has to become a point where so at this point in time, we're being very collaborative and everyone's opinions uh, have value. And at some point, we're not going to have that anymore and that uh, someone's going to make that decision. Cause if you don't, you just have paralysis. Yeah. At Cooper, we used to say, um, I'm omnivorous and non-judgmental at the beginning. And then, you know, you get judgy at the end, you have to, but I do think yeah. I live and die by that double diamond. However many times you do it. The key point being I divorced when I was, I was intentional about when I was being expansive and I was intentional about when I was being convergent and, and that intention extended to who was involved. So like some of the advice I have is like, take that nitpicky, criticky person, bring them in in the bottom half of the diamond where they're great. Have you ever had a kind of situation though, where the person has been designated as the decision maker in that role, if you like, is there a, is there ever a situation where you say, you know, we're going to overrule you anyway? Yeah. Um, I've also seen the situation where you're like, okay, I guess that person's just going to do that. But, you know, when I was at great schools, we use that um, racy DC framework. So it's like the decider, the advisor, the contributor, and the informed. And um, we actually paired up the person who was making the decision with an advisor who had, or two, who could have veto power if they really, truly disagreed. And it just meant that that person who was making the decision had to stand up for that decision a couple of times with people who had some authority. You know, again, just checks and balances. Does that work every time? No, but it can be useful. Yeah. 
So I was really interested that you ended the book with storytelling and it's quite a bit about kind of how storytelling works. And, um, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of storytelling. It's the workshop I'm about to do in, in August at UX Australia. Because I think I mentioned before, I studied film as so a storytelling was very much storytelling in a collaborative way, actually, is very much kind of part of what shaped my thinking. Why did you end with storytelling? As the, It's kind of the, the sort of the outro of the book, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It was sort of um, two things really jumped out at me as I was developing the book. One was the importance of objectives and how little time we actually spend setting them and then how little attention we actually spend communicating about what we did. Because a lot of the breakdowns that I was hearing about had everything to do with not understanding when you transition from your neat little group where you're working together and you're pair designing or whatever, where, you know, in your safe space out to stakeholders and executives and experts it can be challenging. And so I was, um, I happened to be teaching a workshop for Christina Waki, who in her brilliance, like just had some random notes thought to throw together. And I was like, this is genius. I'm going to harness some of it because and when I do storytelling workshops, everyone sort of says, you know, I already know this stuff. And I'm like, right, but you're probably not employing it at work. You know it because you consume media. Yeah, it's really true, isn't it? You're not yeah. doing it or yeah. you wouldn't have the problems you're telling me about. Yeah, it's funny that I see there was a thing I was reading about storytelling the other day and, and the person was saying, um, writing, and they're saying, you're probably thinking right now that storytelling is a bit frivolous and playful and has no place in business. And then he kind of went on to explain why it's at the heart of being a human being, really, and, and at the heart of everything and how important it is. But I had the same thing. I've had exactly the same experience. I was teaching storytelling to um, a client and I was sort of going back to obvious stories that they will know, like, you know, Pinocchio and Shrek and stuff and talking about that. Because in the idea that, you know, you take a structure that you know well and then you to understand it and then you kind of apply it back to your work. And there was still that response of, yeah, but why are we talking about Pinocchio? What's that got to do with my job? <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, and I think you're right. I think that we we know and we're a good storyteller and we really kind of tune into a good storyteller. Um, when you hear someone speak or, you, you know, whether it's in a meeting or a you know, presentation or a conference, very well attuned. And it's like, I, I get stories, but you get stories as the consumer and not as the creator of them and the intricacies of what makes them tick. Yeah, and I wanted in the book to include, I'm not trying to make anybody into some, you know, bard. I'm really trying to give you just enough tools to survive when your collaboration extends over time and you have multiple touch points and you're trying to bring somebody along. And so I just think about the show Lost, right? It's like previously on Lost. Mm. You know, little clips <laughs> like that where you have to remind them. You have to keep track of and remember, first of all, where did you leave them last? Because they haven't been with you. Pick them up at that point. Do some retconning. Like, do some revisionist history if you need to, to get them ready for what we're going to do today. <laughs> you know, I think the biggest mistake that people make in storytelling, and I've done this too, is they leave out the oh shit moment. There's like, there's no conflict, right? Like I've, how many user scenarios have you sat through where it's like, and yeah, he wakes up yeah. and she has a great day and she uses her thing and she totally loves it. And you're like, this is the world's most boring story. <laughs> so it's funny. Cause I interviewed Jimmy Chin, whose movie won a Oscar this year. And um, his movie is about his first movie. Meru is, is like literally life and death. There's like people are in avalanches and, Things are crazy, and they're trying to make this first ascent of this mountain. It's a wonderful movie. You should see it. Anyway, he showed his um, now wife, Chai Vassarelli, a rough cut. And he only had like two hours of footage or something, of incredible footage. And 
she was like, this is not a story. <laughs> this is youth <laughs> climbing. <laughs> and so, you know, they really started a collaboration, the ultimate collaboration, and they still work together today and making, you know, she's the storyteller, he's the cinematographer, and again, using those roles, but valuing the importance of both of them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, film is in that respect, on particularly documentary filmmaking, is is the classic kind of generative and then filtering process, right? You create a lot, a lot of material, and then you really, really whittle it down to just the essentials that work. Yeah. So we're coming up to time. Uh, Power of Ten is named as a sort of homage to the Eames Ryan Charles Eames film. I don't know if you've seen it, where they kind of zoom out. Sure. Um, to the universe and then back in at powers of 10. And, and part of it was this sort of understanding or this recognition that design works at many levels. There's, there's kind of very detailed things that affect the macro and there's sometimes kind of macro shifts that really have to then ripple across all the details. So my, my last question for all the guests is, is there one small thing that you think has an outsized effect on the world or on something or or is there one small thing that you would want to have redesigned to have an outsized effect on the world? Well, I think I'm becoming or have always been, but I've even more so becoming um, interested in the interrelationship of design and regulation and government. Because I think, as we just talked about, the incentives, we are not naturally wired to not screw ourselves up. It's just too, it's <laughs> too tempting. And so I think it's going to take some real like sit-ups and push-ups kind of hard work and training to rein ourselves in and to understand why we're doing that. And so I feel like applying design at the point of like, how do we, again, control algorithms and understand their output and measure biases and keep us all honest is um, the next big frontier. I don't know if that's an out, because it's a big challenge. So maybe that's not a small thing that has an outsized thing, but it's me thinking about taking design to another level that would affect even more people at a more fundamental level. Well, you know, they say uh, bureaucracy is the technology of culture and society. <laughs> so, you know, that's, um, that's probably a good. I think there is a lot to be done there. I, I think we're going to have a, a future episode about that too. Awesome, I love that. So um, Gretchen is, uh, you can find her on Twitter as Greta Red and at GretchenAnderson.com. And I'll put all the links uh, in the show notes too. Gretchen, thank you very much for being on Power of Ten. Thank you so much, Andy. That was really fun. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Power of Ten. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, visit thisishcd.com, where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Dr. John Curran, and Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion. You'll also find the transcripts and links mentioned in the show, and where you can also sign up to our newsletter, join our Slack channel to connect with other designers all around the world. My name is Andy Pallain. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.